0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 8th, 2022, and uh, the Ukraine continues to dominate the news. Uh, Earlier today, I did a show with Brian Class on leadership and the corruption of power and Vladimir Putin. Today we're talking about population and migration, and I wanted to kick off by beginning to think about the Ukraine in a broader sense. Our screens have been dominated by heart-rending images of refugees, of young girls, of pets. New York Times tell us that the Ukraine war has set off Europe's fastest migration in decades. Uh, 660,000 people, they reported last week. I think it's up to about a million and a half now. Uh, Refugees are welcome, apparently, although there's a great deal of dispute about why refugees from Ukraine are more welcome, perhaps, than refugees from Syria or Afghanistan. Um, I want to think about this, perhaps, in terms of population. This is one large country, Russia, a country of 146 million people, uh, invading Ukraine, a country of 43 million people. And when you look at the map, of course, of Eurasia, uh, the size of um, Russia and the size of Ukraine is astonishing. Uh, my guest today on the show, Jennifer uh, Schuber, is the author of a new book, um, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World. Uh, this is a book, of course, not about Ukraine, written before the Ukraine crisis and war. But I'm curious, um, Jennifer, in the subtitle, uh, you've got sex, death, and migration. You don't have war. I assume you think war is important when it comes to population.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that is how they shape our world. By shaping our world, they, they shape our wars. So... Our world is really the placeholder for us to talk about all kinds of larger dynamics, like just political, social, economic dynamics, which of course include things like war. So um, as you mentioned, it's not specifically about Ukraine, but what's nice about the book and intentional is that it's not just, um, here's a snapshot of global trends, because if that were the case, by the time it hits the printing press, it's out of date. Instead, I wanted to talk about trends and how to use them to understand the world better. So in that case, you can pick it up and understand a lot about what's happening in Ukraine, because it's got a set of tools in it for reading the world through a population lens.
0: Uh, Jennifer, last week, uh, actually a couple of weeks ago, I did an, uh, um, an interview with uh, historian Scott Reynolds Nelson, Um, on cheap American grain. He has an interesting new book out, Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. Much of it is about how the American grain industry took on the Russian Ukrainian grain industry successfully at the end of the 19th century. When you think about the current crisis in Ukraine uh, as a demographer, what comes to mind? Is it a lust for territory? Um, Is it energy? Is it uh, one power greedy for the population of another?
1: I, you know, I think the unfortunate thing for us is that it's some of all of those things. We have such a tendency to want to oversimplify because then we can wrap our brains around it. And the simpler the answer, the easier it is for us to do something about it. So if you're a policymaker, you say, tell me, tell me what the problem is so that I can come up with a policy. But I think all of the things that you mentioned are, of course, important. And so I was trained as a political scientist and I use population or demography in order to understand the world better. So, of course, I do think that there is a population dimension to it. Certainly, that's not all of it, but there's even population dynamics that, of course, underlie our need for grain, to call back to the book that you mentioned, or our need for energy. So specifically, one of the things that you brought up is, uh, you know, you started with this what's the population of Ukraine, what's the population of Russia, and and a map. I think that's always a great place to start when we're looking into something, because geography and demography are just the baseline place to go from. I think that's certainly relevant in the case of Russia. So we're talking about a country that lost, it's shrinking. It's a shrinking country. um, At some times during the past 20 years, it was shrinking on the order of about half a million people a year. So the population goes up and down depending on those three ingredients that are the subtitle for the book goes up and down depending on births and migration. And so what we used to seeing for modern history, great power, which went to a whole, you know, Epic is a great power but certainly a a powerful country like your um like Russia having a shrinking population. So this is something we're trying to get our brains wrapped around and it's something that Putin is trying to get his brain wrapped as well to say how can we continue to project power and influence in the world when we're seeing such tremendous population changes. Russia's no stranger to lots of dire population trends with suffering all kinds of mortality events in the past and Changes in the size of the population based on Soviet Union and out migration. But when we put it in today in 2022, um, we are we do know that the population is on a decrease. And I'm trying not to use decline on purpose here, because I really think that's a that's a value word. And it says that anytime a population ages and shrinks, that's naturally bad. So I want to avoid that, but but it is a country that's moving toward being older and and shrinking. And so To what degree is Russia's desire for more Russian speakers driving some of what they're doing? I think it has to be part of what we're talking about, for sure.
0: It certainly does. It's a fascinating question. And and, uh, Jennifer Schuber's new book, Eight Billion and Counting, is a fascinating attempt to make sense of the longer term challenges and opportunities in population, eight billion, of course, meaning the number of people living on the earth uh, jennifer uh last year i had another demographer paul yes. uh, morland on the show i'm sure you're familiar with his work um he has a book the human tide how population shaped the modern world and we talked of course about the famous quote of whether demography is destiny what's your position on the on that as a demographer is is um, is demography destiny does it does it result in certain inevitable things as perhaps the russian invasion of the ukraine
1: no so unequivocally no demography is not destiny and i think what i'm trying to show in this book is how the kinds of policies that we make today the kinds of investments that we make really go a long way in shaping the world that we want tomorrow. So, for example, uh, we know that there are places in the world where we still have really high fertility rates. Some of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa would be an example of this. It is not inevitable that these countries will have those trends forever, and it's not inevitable that those trends lead them to outbreaks of conflict. And and so we don't want to think of them in terms of inevitability. We want to think, where do we have the ability to invest, to make choices? And I think some of the differences within sub-Saharan Africa in terms of fertility rates point us to showing how when countries do more to expand education, particularly for women, um, they do more to give people employment opportunities that are meaningful that fertility rates will fall. When, and they also, of course, give them access to family planning um, services as well. So when that happens, you get a split between countries that still have really high fertility and maybe where those things are absent and places where fertility has really been starting to fall, like Botswana, for example. Also, there are lots of places in the world that have high fertility that do not see outbreaks of conflict. So what makes the difference? And of course, there are investments in governance just as one example, that that can make a difference there. Not every country with a youthful population will be embroiled in, in civil conflict forever. So demography is not destiny. We need to think instead about what we could do now to shape the kind of world we want to see in the future.
0: Well, that's encouraging. Uh, we still have agency then, uh, according yep. to Jennifer Shuber, the author of Eight Billion and Counting, about our populations, we can control them, we can make them larger or smaller, depending on what we want. Uh, the subtitle of the book here, of this new book, uh, I think it's out this week, 8 Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death and Migration Shape Our World. We already touched on the forced migration in the Ukraine. We did a show last year with another very prominent, I guess he's a, d- a demographer, although he's many things, my old Singapore-based friend, Parag Khanna on uh, our tendency to move, the forces uprooting us. I think it's a, a very successful book. Um, are you in the canna camp, camp, uh, Jennifer, when it comes to seeing migration as the core element, perhaps, in making sense of population in the 21st century, especially when it comes to our environmental crisis?
1: I really find... Um a lot of points of departure with, with the arguments in
0: move. Um, it's, a really on this show, Jonathan. Tell (laughs) Tell me why Parag is wrong. Sure. Uh, and Parag is
1: great. And I always learn something when I listen, um, to him or read some of his, his work, but I would say that people vastly overestimate migration. It is it's a shock to many, and it, it you know, one of the the shtick that I might do when I'm talking to a live audience is what percentage of the population in the world do you think lives outside the country in which they were born? Everyone overestimates that. I will not put you on the spot for, for yeah, that.
0: Let me, I, I'm actually a migrant of lots of different kinds, but now- I wonder with Parag whether he's too influenced by his own history and experience, given that he's probably the most international man in right. family I've ever come across. Remarkably so, and, and incredibly yeah. impressive. But are we all, in a sense, I guess, shaped by our own histories, and there we see the rest of the world in that sense?
1: I think that's, that is absolutely relevant. I mean, that's one part of it. It's really only two to four percent of the world's population for the last 50, 60 years that's lived outside the country in which they were born. So, And I find this a lot, honestly, as a Southerner, I live in the Southern part of the United States. And there are not a lot of people like me who are out there in the, um, you know, as thought leaders in issues having to do with policy. It's a lot of Washington, D.C. Beltway or maybe some Silicon Valley and New York City and Singapore and London and so on. And so as an outsider, I actually think that it's an it's an asset to really get a better sense of what it's like for people who are perhaps not um, in that thought bubble. I'm surrounded by a lot of people in in this region of the United States who were Donald Trump voters, for example. And so it was less of a surprise to me to see Donald Trump win than it was for a lot of people who are in those bubbles.
0: I'm in the bubble, in the heart of the bubble, the bubble of the bubble, San Francisco. Jennifer, I know you're outside the bubble in Memphis, Tennessee. Have you always lived there?
1: I have not always lived in Memphis. I've been here since uh, 2008, but I'm from Georgia. So out of my 40, almost two years, I've lived outside of this region for about 10 of those years.
0: One of the cliche, the sort of cliche anecdotes that non-demographers always throw around is that X percent of people grow up within five or 10 miles of where they're born. What's the truth of that, Jennifer? How many people- I don't know, I'm
1: not sure. But I'll say most of my approximately
0: 10, 15, 20, 25.
1: (laughs) That's not one I've ever had to focus on before. I'm not sure. But I would think it's highly likely given that 96 to 98% of people still live within the country that they're born, you know, in which they were born, then that seems plausible.
0: Well, everything is plausible, at least according to Jennifer Schuber, the author of 8 billion and counting, how sex, death and migration shape our world. Um, in in the first half of the show, we've been talking broadly about the Ukraine, about whether demography is destiny, about the role of migration. Uh, After the break, Jennifer, we're going to take a 60 second break. After the break, I want to talk specifically about your book, about Africa, about Japan, Nigeria, the United States and China and all the other very interesting things you get into uh, in your new book, Eight Billion and Counting. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 80 seconds. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching, or even reading about this keen on show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen on show. The first of course, is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast, you can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or Castbox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh and you can do the same um if we're connected uh on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is, and on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Jennifer D. Schuber, the author of Eight Billing and Counting, uh, a very interesting new book about uh, how sex, death, and migration shape our world. Um, Jennifer's talking to me from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, the bookends of your book are nowhere near Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Jennifer. They are uh, Japan and Nigeria. Why are they the demographic Bookends of the the world that you're looking at um, uh, through the lens of 8 billion and counting. What's so unusual and interesting about both Japan and Nigeria?
1: Well, you know, we're set to hit 8 billion soon, any day now. And I think we can learn a lot when we focus on really macro level trends. But as we start to dig down deeper and deeper, we can notice just how incredibly divided the world population is it's more divided than it's ever been before in terms of fertility, mortality, and migration, particularly the the impact of migration on the local communities. So Japan and Nigeria are great examples to understand that division. Um, Japan, a lot of people know, is the world's oldest country. It's definitely the country that got me interested in studying population to begin with many
0: decades ago, even when I was an in, in, I'm sorry, I'm jumping in. Oldest yeah. in terms of the average. In terms of
1: uh, how of, of population aging, so if we took everybody in the country and we lined them up from oldest to youngest, and we asked the person in the middle to raise their hand, that person would be 48 years old. That is remarkably old. Um, not that 48 is old. We'll be careful not to say that, but as terms of median age of a population, it's something we've never seen before in all of of the history
0: of humanity. Uh, you sound as if you take 48 very personally, Jennifer.
1: Uh, yeah, you gotta be really careful. When I first started studying population, I would have been, you know, about 19 or 20 years old. And then it's amazing to keep seeing that the years go by. And then, you know, am I some of these people I'm talking about? I yeah. can't wait
0: to be 48 myself, I have to admit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we've never seen that before. It's uh, it's it's remarkable and it's a remarkable achievement. So I'm not somebody who is down on population aging, the way that a lot of the headlines in the media are. You know, it's the demise of of Japan, the incredible shrinking country, what are they going to do? This is terrible. Population aging is a wonderful thing. It means that we feel secure that our children are going to live to adulthood and that, you know, we have values in life that are, you know, we enjoy lots of things in life besides just rearing children. And I'm a parent, so so I do enjoy my children, but it's just not all doom and gloom. And then Nigeria is on the other end of that spectrum. So they're not the youngest country in the world, but they're the youngest key country, I guess we could say. Um, Niger is the youngest country What's in the, the world. What's the
0: average age in Nigeria today? I
1: believe it's 18. So if we did the 18, same thing, we're 18, lining everybody up. Yeah, to 48
0: in, in uh, yeah. Japan. That's an astonishing
1: it It is. Japan. It's a big difference. Yeah. So when we think about, you know, what do finances look like? What kind of economic structure? What does democracy look like? What does education system look like? Uh, All of those questions, we have different answers when we're looking at a place where it's maybe 20 years old for a median age versus 48 years old.
0: I've read so many pieces about the coming demographic explosion in Africa. The hockey stick is already going up dramatically. Uh, getting beyond Nigeria, uh, Jennifer, how many people would you estimate will live in Africa approximately by the middle of the twenty-first century, and how is it going to change that continent?
1: Well, here's what's nice. I mean, the estimates we often see are around two billion people, but two billion no, in I'm-
0: Africa itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, but to go back to something we talked about earlier these trends are not set in stone. Now, to some degree, something called population momentum is baked in. I mean, if you think about people who are five years old today, we know how many five year olds there are, particularly we know how many five year old females there are. So when we want to think about how many children there might be in the future, it's kind of baked in there. How large is that cohort? And then how many children might they have? But there is still a lot of room for change. And in the book, uh, I think it's in the concluding chapter, I've got a graph in there that talks about how Nigeria, just just Nigeria's population might change in the future. And it's compared to how Botswana's population did change, how their fertility rates did change. So fertility has actually fallen really fast in most of the world, much faster than we might have expected. So I don't know if you like me remember that we used to have these projections that world population would top out at like 13 billion. I still remember when that was common, but since then, we've walked it back to thinking it might be something like 10 or 11 billion to top out, and that's because fertility fell so quickly. So when we look at sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of people still think about very high fertility everywhere, but that is not the case. So there are lots of countries in sub-Saharan Africa where fertility has fallen to three children per woman, um, you know, even four children per woman, but on the decline but it's really in that sahelian region in the sahel where the fertility rates are remaining high so when we want to ask the question how high will africa's population go we need to say what's being done now in the countries where it's still really high to turn it onto a different path and so i'm one of the people who thinks we really will still continue to see that region grow because we haven't yet seen that investment. But that doesn't mean it can't change. And so hopefully someone could read this book and say, there might be wonderful opportunities in this region for economic growth if we invest now in in terms of changing fertility trends as people want them to change in the future.
0: You mentioned that we used to be much more bullish, for better or worse, on Mm -hmm. population growth. That often was associated with the growth of the Chinese population, which is dramatically slowing down. What did Chinese demographics teach us about um, sex, death and migration in our world, Jennifer?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, I think they, nobody's phrased it to me that way before, but that's actually a really great way to think about it because I, I always talk about this Goldilocks way of looking at population. When we're in the media, it's somebody's either too big or they're too little, and it's never just right. And we saw a lot of U.S. policymakers look at China's large and growing population in the past and say, they're just too big. Look how quickly they're growing. And then now it's just, look how quickly they're headed towards a shrinking population and didn't leave them a lot of room to be just right. I think what we've seen in China is that even aside from the one-child policy People prefer to have smaller families. When you're talking about a country that big, it changes the overall demographic trends for the world. So we are a world that is headed towards low fertility everywhere.
0: Is that a good thing, by the way? Are you happy as a demographer about that?
1: That we're headed toward low fertility? Yeah. If that's what people want, then that's where we should be. Really, quite simply, I mean, it's really about saying, you know, again, it's a level of analysis issue. So we might say, what's the best, what's the optimal population level, optimal fertility for a a country? And a lot of people might say, oh, it's replacement level, it's 2.1, because that way you've got as many people coming into the workforce as there are exiting the workforce and so on. But then you have to remember that these are individuals who are making this decision so it's really about saying hey you how many children do you want and do you have the ability to have the as many as you want and the the right answer is actually however many you want
0: jennifer one of my favorite chapters in the book is the one in which you contrast karl marx and thomas malthus who was enormously influential in 19th century um population politics Who was more right about demography, Marx or Malthus?
1: That's a great question. I think we got to keep the debate alive because it is in continuing to discuss who was more right that we get our good policy decisions. Explain the
0: debate because not everyone will be familiar with the population politics of either Marx or Malthus.
1: So I teach a lot of environmental courses and kind of belong to that camp. So Malthus is alive and well in the environmental camp. Uh, Malthus ro- was worried that we would basically run out of food for the world's population, even though the time he was writing, we had uh, around 1 billion people on the planet total. Um, and so he was said population grows exponentially. Our food production grows linearly. We will have a world of starvation. And a lot of that was based on what he saw when he would walk the streets and see women with lots of children who are really poor and underfed. And so he he goes from there that we're headed towards this decline. Mark said, I'm pretty sure you're blaming poor people for being poor. Like they, it's their fault that they're poor because they're having too much children. And that gives you an excuse not to work on other things. Just change some of the names and some of the details and it's the same conversation that we would have today, so in the environmental camp it's still really popular to talk about overpopulation. The world is overpopulated is shorthand for there are too many people in poor countries having too many children, which I disagree with. Um, And I think a Marxian viewpoint which my, my husband, if I hope he can't, he's still working from the house. So I hope he can't hear me because he might think I'm coming, being a Marxian here.
0: Um, but it's yeah, to say, in, you get in trouble in, in Memphis, Tennessee, for doing that Jennifer, wouldn't you?
1: It's not true. I'm yeah. I'm just talking about the debate. So it's important to think about, are you blaming the poor people for having too many children or what are the other array of policies that you could put into place to see economic growth?
0: I've been teasing you about being in Memphis, uh, which is the heart, I guess, in some ways of America. Certainly, one of the geographical hearts. What about American population? Um, there's currently today, my research showed my online about three hundred and thirty-five million Americans mm-hmm. versus almost one and a half billion uh, people in China. In this new I don't know whether you call it, conflict or great power political rivalry between China and America, which will dominate the 21st century uh, with or without Vladimir Putin and Russia. What do these disparities of population tell us about the relative strength of America and China and what America needs to do to perhaps keep up with Chinese economic and even demographic growth?
1: Yeah, you know, there are so many... And I try to go through this in the book that we really can't simplify it to just they have more people than us or they have more people of working age population than America does. Instead, we've really got to dig into what are you doing with what you have? So there you could take two countries in the world that have really similar population dynamics, but look at how different they are in terms of a host of political and economic variables. So what's the difference here? So with the United States, we do not do enough in in this country to make use of the workforce that we have. Um, And that's true of a lot of countries in the world, and Japan might be another one where women's labor force participation, for example, is very low. So there are always debates in the United States about what population aging will do to the economy because there will be so many baby boomers retiring. That's fine. But what about the people who are still of working ages? If they want to work, are they able to work as much as they want to? And for the case of women, and today's International Women's Day, so I can't help but note that there's such a caregiving crisis in the United States that a lot of women cannot work um, in the kind of jobs that they would like to do. And that's saying you're not taking advantage of what you have in the United States.
0: That's where we began. Uh, Jennifer, uh, with the Ukraine and the refugee crisis. Uh was an interesting piece today. I saw that Israel is opening its borders to the refugees, but they're limiting the number of non-Jewish refugees. There's a huge debate in Europe about why Europeans rejected refugees from Syria and North Africa and Afghanistan and embraced the Ukrainians. We did a show recently with a, a journalist, rather brave journalist, Patrick Strickland, about how uh, the citizens of a small Arizona border town stood up to, literally stood up to anti-immigrant militias. What's the value, in your view, of migration from the point of view of the country that is bringing in new people? Is it a clear, clearly beneficial? Is that true, or is is it more complicated than that?
1: It's certainly more complicated, but you know, a lot of the times it's, it's coming down to this trade-off between economic goals and humanitarian goals. And the fact that they can really be at cross purposes is where we get so much of our politics around migration. And that's, that's of course, the case with Ukraine versus Syria, Afghanistan, et cetera, as well. Um, we might have the desire is to reach out to people in other countries who are going through these crises and have been displaced, uh, forced migrants, But then there are are always economic and political considerations. Can they be easily integrated into the labor market? In a lot of cases, people have gone through really traumatic experiences to get to a final destination, and their skills may not be a direct match for what the economy needs. We want
0: that. I did a show recently with Nomi Stolzenberg, who, who wrote a wonderful book about how a group of American Hasidic Jews who escaped the Holocaust established their own kind of shtetl in northern New York it's a poor community but so what shouldn't we want to welcome people and allow them to create their own lifestyles
1: yeah i mean i'm actually much more of a pro immigration person but when we but but the reason i think that a lot of people overestimate Waves of migration in the future is that they forget that politics is the gatekeeper. So, as a political scientist, you might have, there are demographic pressures that exist across fertility, mortality, and migration. But whether or not states decide to let people in is purely a political question. And it is about individual countries and communities weighing their views on humanitarian versus economic versus political concerns. And that's why we see such different responses among different countries, because it's the same migration pressure, but the politics itself is so different, which of course gives us lots to study, but it doesn't really do that much to help the people who have been displaced because more than anything, they are going to continue to face borders that are more closed than not both now and in the future.
0: Hard-hitting, coherent, cogent, Jennifer D. Schuber, both uh, on the show and the book, Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death and Migration Shape Our World. It's not always excusing the world the sexiest of subjects, given the drama of our headlines, but it probably is the most important issue still confronting us as a species. Uh, Jennifer, congratulations on this wonderful new book. It's out this week. What else should people be reading in early March 2022? Well,
1: um, if, if you're interested in population aging, a colleague of mine has a book out called The Super Age that I think is a really nice way of getting our brains wrapped around what does it mean to be a world of, of population aging? His name's Bradley Sherman. I think that book is really excellent. Um, and I know I don't have to only mention demographic books, but I do a lot of reading in that area. And I also think that um, Extra Life by Stephen Johnson is really fascinating. I don't know if you've had him on before. No, I he's it.
0: someone I should go on. He's really
1: oh, absolutely. That book. A, yep.
0: Uh, right. So many different things and sort of, yep. of course, made his name in tech, but uh, that's, a, that's a really good idea. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank
1: Finally, you um,
0: I'm asking everyone this. Uh, Jennifer D. Schuber, author of 8 Billion and Counting. Jennifer, who runs the world? Who's in charge?
1: Well, oh, we have a visitor behind us. Oh, we know who's
0: in charge in your household, right? <laughs> behind you, the cat.
1: Well, the pets and children are in charge in my house. <laughs> this is, then that's different. But I think in our International Women's Day, we've got to point out that uh, half of our 8 billion people would be the women. And so uh, a lot of what we are saying we're concerned about with sex, death, and migration, paying more attention to... What women's lived experiences are and what tremendous opportunities that they can provide for us in terms of peace and security and development is exactly how we need to be focusing our attention.